Hello, and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we are delighted to welcome three wonderful guests to our podcast Professor Sakata Yasuyo, Dr. Maria Solis, and Dr. Chungmin Lee. To discuss the Japan South Korea relationship, one of Asia's most important bilateral relationships, its recent rapid improvement and future prospects. By way of introduction to our panelists, Professor Sakata Yasuyo is Professor of International Relations at the Kanda University of International Studies in Japan. Yasuyo specializes in the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia Indo Pacific security with a focus on alliances and the US South Korea Japan security cooperation. She is also a research fellow at the Research Institute for Peace and Security in Tokyo. Yasuyo was also a visiting research fellow at the Institute of Modern Korean Studies at Yonsei University and at the Sigua Center for Asian Studies at George Washington University. Dr. Maria Solis is director of the Center for East Asian Policy Studies. She is also Philip Knight Chair in Japan Studies and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. Before this, Mireya was a tenured associate professor at American University's School of International Service. Mireya is an expert on Japanese foreign economic policy, international trade policy, and US economic statecraft in Asia. Among several books, she is the author of Dilemmas of a Trading Nation Japan and the United States in the Evolving Asia Pacific Order, for which she received the 2018 Masayoshi Ohira Memorial Award. And Dr. Chung Min Lee, who is Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C., and Professor at the Institute of Convergence and Security Affairs in the Korea Advanced Institute for Science and Technology. Before joining Carnegie, Chung Min taught for 20 years at the Graduate School of International Studies, GSIS, at Seoul's Yonsei University, and was South Korea's Ambassador for National Security Affairs from 2013 to 2016. Chung Min is also Chairman of the Advisory Council and Trustee of the IISS. Thank you all very much for being here today to discuss this very important bit of Northeast Asia's international relations. Let's start with a bit of history. Japan's colonization of the Korean Peninsula in the early 20th century has cast a long shadow over the trajectory of the Japan ROK relationship over the years. So, I think it's、uh, important perhaps to start with some context. Narrowing the, the focus to the past 30 years or so,、uh, since South Korea became fully democratic in 1992, with the election of its first fully civilian president, Kim Young Sam. Yasio, if, if I may start with you, what stood out to you about the journey of bilateral relations during the last 30 years or so? Well, thanks. You know that Dr. Victor Cha wrote that famous book, Alignment Despite Antagonism. I think that really describes the、uh, Korea Japan relationship. Yes, history issues and territorial issues sometimes override strategic cooperation, but at the same time, you know, vice versa. Then the cycle comes back to yes, we have to focus on strategic and security cooperation over and、um, take care of the history issues and so forth. So the security and history cycle is unfortunately still there, but we are progressing as we go along. When we talked before the show, you were talking about the 1998 highlight, Kim Dae jung and Obuchi Keizo. Would you like to just perhaps illuminate for our listeners why this was so important? Post war Korea Japan relations first is set by the 1965 Korea Japan Normalization Treaty, but it has been greatly upgraded in the 1998 President Kim Dae jung Prime Minister Obuchi's joint declaration on future partnership for the 21st century. After that, we haven't quite、um, 
implemented enough what we agreed to in that declaration. That 1990 declaration has been revisited recently by the two leaders, uh, President Yoon and um, Prime Minister Kishida, that we have today. Chung Min, you're joining us from Seoul. How do you view the past 30 years? And perhaps you could give us a snapshot of what's happened over the past five years. You know, Robert, first of all, it's a real pleasure to join you and, and great friends on this podcast. For me, Japanese-Korean relations is like a storm in a bottle that really cannot be broken. And the reason is very simple. You cannot find a country in Asia that is as close as Japan and Korea, historically, culturally, etc. Of course, Korea also has long ties with the Chinese. Given that we have had this long historical relationship, both good as, as well as, as bad, the problem is how do you bring this relationship into the 21st and 22nd century? This is a work in progress. In other words, one of the greatest challenges, but also great thing about the Korean-Japanese relationship is that because so many things can go wrong over something very, very small, it takes gargantuan efforts by the political leadership, civilian society, media, and other leaders to make things right. And I think over the last 30 years, despite all the ups and downs, especially under the Moon Jae-in government in the last five years, I am very hopeful that with the generational change in the 20s and 30s, this younger generation, I hope, will have a very different view on bilateral ties because the Japanese and the Koreans face two gigantic challenges, demographic cliff and very slow economic growth. In other words, if the Japanese and Koreans don't figure out the demographic issue, they're not really going to matter geopolitically or economically or technologically. This is why I think the Japanese and Koreans must join hands. I like your image of a storm in a bottle that cannot be broken. That's a very striking uh, way of putting uh, the bilateral ties. And Mireya, you're joining us from Washington, D.C. How do you think the U.S. has navigated this storm in this unbreakable bottle? It certainly has been a challenge because these are the closest allies of the United States in Asia. And having a functional relationship between Japan and South Korea is important. I also think that the United States and Japan have had a really extraordinary record of historical reconciliation. So how can we think about that experience and then apply it to the Japan-South Korea case is something that we could also discuss at length. But if I may, uh, Robert, I also want to talk a little bit about the broader context that you asked us about the historical issues between uh, Japan and South Korea, because I clearly see that the wounds of the past continue to haunt relations today, whether it's wartime, forced labor, comfort women, textbooks, they're also territorial frictions. Now, the level of tension in the bilateral relationship has not been constant throughout the post-war period, which also indicates that domestic politics is a factor that we need to consider. Now, when we step back and look at structural factors, I think that there are two that come to mind. One is, of course, that the United States has had this hub-and-spoke alliance system in Asia, and that therefore stood in the way for South Korea and Japan to develop habits of cooperation amongst the two of them because they were un operating in parallel tracks with the United States. And that I think has also hurt the development of trust between the two. But I also believe that post-war democratization 
in Japan first and later in South Korea is an important factor because the most robust insurance that Japan will not repeat the mistakes of the past is actually its democratization, the very healthy Japanese democracy. Japan has now become a status quo power. I think that the respect of international law is a north star of Japanese foreign policy. When you see Japan changing its security policy recently, and some feel that that will trigger again militarism, Japan feels that that's a disingenuous attack. It's very important also to consider South Korea's democratization because it has transformed the way in which society views and supports victims' claims. The Treaty of Normalization with Japan in 1965 was negotiated at a time that South Korea was not a democracy yet, and therefore many people believe that the claims of the victims, the hurt of the victims, was not factored enough. And I think that cast an important light on how pressing it seems in South Korea to address these compensation claims. If I could just uh, add a couple of points, I think Mirai is absolutely right. In other words, politics always hovers around Japanese-Korean and Korean-Japanese ties. And I want to say this to our listeners all over the world. For example, in April 2024, Korea will hold critical National Assembly elections. Right now, the conservatives are a minority in the 300-seat assembly, and the Democratic Party, the opposition, hold a fairly big majority in parliament. If the Yoon government's majority increases in 24, I think that will be even more positive for Korean-Japanese ties. If, however, the Democratic Party does very well, either keeps its majority or even by a slim margin, then there will be political tensions. Korea is a full-fledged democracy. I agree with Maria, you know, 100%. But the problem is the opposition, the Democratic opposition, has a tendency to exploit, quote-unquote, anti-Japanism for domestic political gain. That is one major, uh, I guess, hurdle that we have to overcome. And the same applies, but in a different context, for the ultra-conservatives in Japan, because using anti-Koreanism to gather votes really has worked in the past. Korea and Japan must both overcome that, I think, somehow desire at some point to exploit each other's negative feelings. And that's something that I think will bring us closer to true reconciliation. Mireya and Jungmin-san mentioned the impact of domestic politics on Korea-Japan relations. I also agree with Mireya on the structural factors of the, the demographics. Uh, also, Jungmin-san mentioned about the demographics and the uh, economic uh, future of the two countries that would impact uh, whether Korea and Japan would be relevant in this uh, new strategic um, competition, this new world. But on the domestic politics uh, area, I agree with what Chungming Sensei said about the uh, factors of domestic politics, you know, constrain Korea-Japan relations for now. President Yoon has to fight with the anti-Japanese politics that's still continued by a group of politicians on the very, very progressive side. On the other hand, Japan also has to worry, or Prime Minister Kishida has to worry about the very conservative aspects of the people in the Japanese politics as well. So the two leaders are actually constrained by both their domestic politics. What's driving the recent rapprochement between Korea-Japan relations now is that both the President Yoon and Prime Minister Kishida, the two leaders are trying to overcome 
overcome constraints in domestic politics very cautiously, but trying to change the game a little bit so that Korea-Japan can move on, as far as history issues are concerned, try to work toward more rapprochement. On the labor's issue that President Yoon made a bold decision to take care of this issue back in March of 2023 to you know, overcome this by deciding on third-party compensation formula to basically attend to both the Supreme Court decision in Korea, but at the same time, respect the Korea-Japan 1965 agreement. So that opened up the way for Prime Minister Kishida to step in and uh, re-support the uh, 1998 declaration, the remorse apologies regarding the history issues that Japan made in the 1998 Kim Dae-jun Obuchi declaration. Prime Minister Kishida went to South Korea in May the second time. This is part of this whole new renewal of shuttle diplomacy, which stopped 12 years ago, but now it's resumed. And in the second visit by Prime Minister Kishida, he was able to respond a little more by making some personal comments about how he felt so heartfelt sympathies or empathies with the people in Korea that have to experience hardships during the colonial era and so forth. At the G7 Hiroshima summit, the two leaders actually went and paid respects to the Korean Atomic War Victims Memorial, which is in the big Hiroshima Memorial Park. The two leaders together with their first ladies went and paid respects to these victims. This is something really actually historic. We're hoping that there's further continual steps toward reconciliation. And this has to be done by both sides. President Yoon is actually very pathbreaking. The Japanese public is like kind of surprised, you know, because the past five years, everything was about, oh, no Japan, I don't like Japan, and so forth. The Japanese public was pretty fatigued or disappointed, really, that is any Korean president ever going to say Japan is important? We haven't heard that for like over five years at least. But all of a sudden, President Yoon comes in and says, Japan is important. Japan is a partner for Korea. We have to fight for freedom for the world. President Yoon is making very big steps, path-breaking steps to break the ice within the Japanese mindset. And it's making it so much easier for Prime Minister Kishida to step in and do that, you know, dance together, so to speak. You mentioned, Yasio, the fact that President Yoon and Prime Minister Kishida went to the memorial to the Korean victims of the Hiroshima bomb. And I've been struck by the sort of intensely personal nature of this engagement. When President Yoon came to Tokyo, the Okonomiyaki diplomacy, and then when Prime Minister Kishida went to Seoul, uh, not to Tokyo, it was, it was uh, another city, I think, where they had Okonomiyaki, perhaps. Prime Minister Kishida sampled the bomb shot, uh, Korea's famous bomb shot drink, which I, I've never uh, drunk uh, myself, but I gather it's quite a cocktail. <laughs> yes. But I was, so lots of sort of personal investment by these two leaders. But given what, what you've all said, how sustainable do you think this improvement is? Perhaps uh, Chung Min, uh, you first. If you speak about domestic politics, I would argue that the big real, you know, gorilla in the room is the possibility of Trump re-entering the White House. And if that happens, I guarantee you there will be a Trump trauma deeply felt in both Tokyo and in Seoul. And so perhaps Mireya can really fill us in on how U.S. domestic politics could impact relations with the Japanese and Koreans. But just briefly, Robert, I think it's this. Even if the UN government does well in the April 24 general election and the conservatives win a majority, 
there will always be a group of people who are going to exploit the so-called Japan card within Korea. That is becoming smaller for two reasons. Number one, we've heard this song before, and this song really isn't going to help anything. It's basically, you know, thumping your chest. And so the people have seen this for so long that it no longer carries the weight that it may did maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago. And number two, and more importantly, the rise of China, China's growing shadows militarily, technologically, you know, politically, what have you, really dominates the oxygen in Japan and Korea. And so the Koreans realize that if we are not able to stand together with the Americans, the Europeans, like our friends in, the, in NATO, such as the UK and France and Germany, and Japan and Korea in particular, and Australia, we are going to be outfoxed by the Chinese. And that's a realization that I think and I hope will actually become much more important than domestic politics in South Korea. First of all, the progressives in South Korea factor, the anti-Japan card. In South Korean politics, 30% conservatives, 30% progressives, and then there's the 40% in between. Our focus is to how to influence, engage that 40% who's trying to think real realistically in terms of relations with Japan and China as well. And uh, Mireille, over to you for the US issues. First of all, for context, I think that the current rapprochement between Japan and South Korea is really quite striking when you consider that over the past five years, the bilateral relationship had really touched some really low points. And what was different in my mind in the last five years is that there were a lot of spillover effects. And as the climate deteriorated between the two countries, then you saw the number of grievances grow and grow. You had the Supreme Court rulings in South Korea and the possibility that the assets of Japanese companies would be liquidated. That was a red line for Japan. That was in 2018. Then you had in 2019, the export control row dispute between Japan and South Korea. Japan tightened its export controls over three chemicals that very important for semiconductor manufacturing. And Korea took Japan to the WTO and both sides delisted each other from the preferential export control treatment. And then South Korea also at some point threatened perhaps to not continue with the JISOMIA agreement to share military cooperation. So the more grievances you have, the more fires you have to put out and the less trust there is. And that's the context in which this rapprochement happened. And therefore, before we talk about how sustainable it is, we also have to understand why it happened. And in my mind, it's a, it's a combination of structure and agency. Structure, I think it's the deterioration in the security environment, the more heated geopolitical divides, more menacing North Korea, China that embarks on more coercive diplomacy, the shock of the Ukraine war, the concerns that the Taiwan situation could become uh, more serious, that there could actually be an end to the so-called Asia long peace. Those are, they, they sober the mind. And they drive home the point for uh, Seoul and uh, Tokyo that if they continue to have dysfunctional relations, they put themselves at a disadvantage in how they solve uh, these issues. So that's a very important context. Then there is agency, and I completely agree that President Yoon took very bold action in solving the uh, forced labor issue with a formula, putting forward a formula that addressed Japan's uh, red lines. But that is not obviously generates a significant pushback 
inside uh, South Korea because many people feel it was not a balanced uh, compromise. Another important factor in this rapprochement is, I think, the United States and the arrival of uh, Joe Biden. This begins to answer Chung-Lin's question to me. I think uh, the arrival of Joe Biden provides to the White House provides a tailwind for the rapprochement because it makes it possible to capitalize on the potential for bilateral and trilateral cooperation. There are similarities between the Trump White House and the Biden White House and some important areas of foreign policy. A very skeptical eye towards China, inward-looking economic policies. But there is a crucial difference for the discussion we're having here today, and that is that the Biden administration actually believes in alliances and partnerships, and it's not trying to harass its allies, it's not threatening to withdraw troops from South Korea, it's not trying to squeeze its partners. If you read the Indo-Pacific strategy of the Biden White House, it's about creating coalitions of strength to change the environment in which China operates. What could be a challenge to this rapprochement? I think that the geopolitical and the geoeconomic challenges will continue to advise, let's work together. The international environment, because it's harsh, creates an incentive for these three countries to work together. But the domestic politics, going back to a theme that is emerging from our conversation today, will be an important factor, a polarized South Korea. So what happens in the next presidential election? Would you have a return of someone like Moon that had a very different attitude on foreign policy on China or on Japan or not? I also think that Prime Minister Kishida, will he have the will and the ability to invest significant political capital to further improve relations with South Korea? I'm not sure because he is facing the possibility of a snap election later this year and because his support levels have not stabilized. He continues to bleed and then come back, bleed and come back. So that again complicates his calculation. And of course, in the mind of all of us is the American presidential election of 2024. If a Trump or someone like Trump returns to the White House, again, it becomes very hard to have these very important ally of both Japan and South Korea creating those opportunities to really reap the benefits of trilateral cooperation. So that to me are, are the elements of uncertainty in sustaining the rapprochement. Mireille, thank you for bringing out bilateral and trilateral areas of cooperation, because this brings us to the next chapter in this podcast, which is around looking about how Japan and South Korea can cooperate. I've been following the development of South Korea's own Indo-Pacific policy concept, which is interesting as now Japan and South Korea both have Indo-Pacific policies. And we've been talking a little bit about the traditional security cooperation, perhaps areas of promise uh, for this sort of cooperation. So Chung-min, I can see you sort of nodding Chung-min, where do you see within this very important bilateral relations relationship the most promising areas of cooperation? That's a critical question. As you know, at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, uh, led by IISS, the defense ministers of the US, Japan, and Korea agreed to share real-time intelligence on North Korean missiles and nuclear problems. And so this makes GSOMIA even much stronger than it was before. In July, as I understand, President Biden has invited Prime Minister Kishida and President Yoon to Washington to consolidate a trilateral working partnership. And so they're going to discuss a number of issues, whether it's China, North Korea, supply chain resilience, and so forth. But they will also, I believe, talk about uh, perhaps cooperating on the newly formed nuclear consultative group 
between South Korea and the U.S. to enhance deterrence. And so if the Japanese and the Americans and Koreans are able to talk with each other at this particular forum and make it a new structure, that will be a very different jump from previous trilateral security cooperation. My final word is, you know, uh, Robert, I never imagined that the prime ministers of Japan and the presidents of Korea, together with their counterparts in New Zealand and Australia, would have participated at NATO summits, as they did last year, and they will again this year. And so the fact that you have the AP4 leaders, in particular, Japanese PM and the Korean president, flying and talking with their NATO counterparts, it really does boggle the mind and just emphasizes how tightly knit global security is within the three major so-called pro-Western blocs, the U.S., Europe and Northeast Asia, i.e. Japan and South Korea. Chung-min, I mean, interesting you mentioned NATO there. Do you see NATO as a, as a sort of conduit uh, for bringing Japan and South Korea close together? I think so. You know, the, the, uh, I mean, NATO wants to establish a liaison office in Tokyo. President Macron of France is a little bit cooler to the idea, so we don't know if that's going to happen or not. But both the Japanese government and the Korean government have ambassadors in Brussels who are also focusing on NATO issues. And so post-Ukraine, I think Koreans and the Japanese much more so are working on Indo-Pacific strategy that is a direct impact on our European partners. And so the fact that the Koreans are sending arms to Poland, for example, Robert, was not, you could not have imagined this 10 years ago. The linkage is the weakest amongst the three trilateral partners, but I believe that there is tremendous room for growth for security cooperation between NATO and Japan and Korea. Mireille, I can see you nodding now, and Yasuo also wants to get in. So uh, Mireille, you go first, and then Yasuo. I think it's really quite striking that we had that non-pen declaration last fall about a trilateral Pacific partnership. And when you read it, you have a common language from the three countries about what are the main challenges that the uh, region faces, North Korea, coercive actions uh, that uh, threaten to undermine the status quo, and of course, Russia's uh, violation of international law and concerns about the stability of the Taiwan Strait. A common read of what are some of the major threats is very important development. But then also fleshing out what are going to be some priority items in the regional agenda. And they talk about ASEAN, they talk about Mekong, they talk about Pacific Islands. I don't think a few years ago we would have this common front in reading the region and aligning on what needs to happen next. So I think that's important. For Japan, I think this is a very significant development that South Korea now is looking broader beyond the Korea Peninsula and fleshing out this Indo-Pacific strategy. Because recently I did a little exercise trying to map out how Japan is creating new security partnerships with different countries. And I had therefore columns for the UK, Australia, India, Vietnam, Philippines, and where they cooperate on security cooperation. Do they have a two plus two consultative mechanism? Have they declared a strategic partnership? Things of this nature. And the one column that almost came empty is with South Korea. And that meant that there's a very stunted security uh, relationship there. And now the door has opened for that to be fixed. But I also think that South Korea, now that it's thinking about how to have broader reach in the region, 
we should be asking ourselves what multilateral South Korea can be joining, will be joining. And I think that the one element I would like to highlight, if I may, Robert, is about the possibility of South Korea joining the CPTPP. Because for a very long time, one of the biggest hurdles was actually the fallout with Japan, that there was not that political understanding, and therefore many felt that that made it out of reach for South Korea to join. And I think that South Korea has for a very long time flirted with the possibility of joining the TPP or the CPTPP, and the timing has not been right. In the beginning, in the early years of the TPP, South Korea felt that the bilaterals it was negotiating with the US, with the European Union, with China, that they were not enough. We need regional agreements. Then uh, when it actually was about uh, ready to raise its hand to join the TPP, it was told that it was too late, that they were trying to close the negotiations so it couldn't come as a founding member. And then the United States eventually left and that deflated interest. Now that you have these understanding better climate of relations with Japan, I think the time is right for South Korea to make a formal bid. But my impression is that South Korea is actually now prioritizing the Indo-Pacific economic framework and that it feels it does not have sufficient political capital of bandwidth to then also try for the CPTPP. My concern here is that South Korea will miss the boat again and that the IPEF will generate very modest accomplishments just on the supply chain resilience. The glance we have of what has been achieved, we don't have the full text, is that they agreed to establish working committees to look at the issues. That's not a very substantive outcome. And therefore, I think that it would be important for South Korea to think about utilizing strategically this window and find a way into the CPTPP. I think that South Korea shares in the outlook, in the goal, in the missions of many of the activities of the Quad. Whether the Quad is thinking right now about formally taking on another member is a different question. I think that maybe, again, latching into the working groups on emerging technologies and other areas that the Quad is doing would be the way to gradually consider joining the Quad. But I think that that's still a little bit too early for this to happen. Quickly on the Quad, Robert, I think initially when the Yun government came into power in May, they did talk about the fact that it was desirable for the ROK to join the Quad if at all possible. But I think that enthusiasm has waned, not because the Quad is not important, it's because Korea actually has leveled up on the technology front. And so I think in that sense, Koreans feel fairly confident that because of, of economic security, as Miraya said, is on the front lines, as with uh, technology security, I think the Yun government has a full plate. Joining the Quad would be a really nice icing on the cake, but it is not something that they're going to use a lot of political capital on at this time. Thank you, Chungmin. Yasuyo, yes, please. So I think rather than uh, form, take the substance. That's the, I think, approach that the uh, South Koreans and Japan is also doing. Quad, I mean, Japan, it's it's about um, US, Japan, Australia engaging India. And that's like one big task in itself. So having another member in there would, I mean, certainly complicate things. And I think for uh, South Korea, not being a member of the Quad, but being a partner of it actually gives it more flexibility in its Indo-Pacific strategy. And uh, now that, you know, they're founding members of IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Cooperation Mechanism. So that makes it easier for them to, you know, be a player 
you know, be present at the creation to make rules about these um, new areas of economic supply chains. And I think the quad issue, as Chumming Sensor has said, it's, it's waned in terms of whether to join or not. And when you look at their national security strategy, South Korea's national security strategy that has just been published, they were very, very careful about the wording about quad. All they wrote was that they'll um, cooperate with relevant mechanisms. I think that issue is over. My uh, take on the strategic cooperation, the new areas of strategic cooperation that Korea Japan can take. Number one, the Phnom Penh statement, as Mireya Hassan said, is the, I think, statement, the document that really um, has finally redefined the U.S.-Korea-Japan trilateral relationship from not just a relationship that focuses, on North, but that focuses on North Korea. It deals with just a comprehensive set of issues that are out there. And it redefined itself uh, as, a, uh, I think, a trilateral Indo-Pacific partnership. I think that was the title of the Phnom Penh Statement. It covers from military security to economic security, and then from North Korea to, yes, Ukraine, to maritime security, China Sea, Taiwan's trade, all the issues that has to be in there are in there. So yeah, now our task is, yeah, how much can we implement it? And that's the task we face ahead, you know, beyond 2023. But number one, that the Plump and statement is very important um, in terms of uh, the way ahead for Indo-Pacific cooperation among the um, two, uh, Korea, Japan and um, Korea, Japan, U.S. Number two, the Shangri-La Dialogue, yes, by IISS. Um, so that was about the defense ministry, defense relationship. And it was really good that the uh, um, there was the trilateral, Korea, Japan, U.S., but also the Korea, Japan bilateral defense ministers formal meeting. That's been in about five or six years. This uh, was due to another set of issues that did not have to do with the labor's issue or the uh, GSAMIA or, or the uh, export control. It was something just between the two navies, Korea-Japan navies, that happened, unfortunately, in December of 2018, on the, the radar lock-on and all that. But the point of the Shangri-La dialogue defense meeting between Korea-Japan was to shake hands, get over it, and um, figure out how to, to figure out preventive measures and rebuild trust. But I would like to add, though, that um, it looks good on the surface, okay? and the defense ministries, defense civilian officials have shaken hands, but it's really up to the military, the seifuku, the uh, uniformed people that really have a lot to do uh, in um, rebuilding the confidence between the two militaries. And that's something that's going to be upcoming in 2023. I am all for Korea, Japan, U.S. trilateral defense cooperation because it's necessary. But um, I would like to note that there is still this uh, uneasiness um, or uncomfortableness um, on the Japan side. Usually, the South Korean side is like, why should why should be why should we cooperate with Japan? Uh, there are those elements within South Korea that are very vocal about it. I think you also are facing a new Japan where Japan is also rather uncomfortable or uneasy uh, about um, how to go ahead with the trilateral cooperation. We know we need it. We have to do it. North Korea, as you know, um, we were not in North Korea's missile range in the night back in the 1990s, but now we all definitely are. And we're very also worried about entanglement on the Korean Peninsula as well, but we know we're entangled, so we have to figure something out. 
But at the same time, there there's this Taiwan Straits issue, as has been mentioned. In Japanese, yoyuga nai. In Korean, yoyuga opta. There's so many things on our plate, and Japan has to prioritize on the uh, Senkaku Taiwan um, Southwestern Islands issue. But we're also looking at North Korea as well. So we have to figure out some new type of cooperation, um, division of roles, where we uh, overlap. Um, how can we cooperate on North Korea and Taiwan at the same time? Um, these are new issues that we have to discuss in our new um, defense uh, cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. And lastly, Chung Mi mentioned about nuclear consultation group agreed to uh, in the U.S. ROK summit uh, back in April about you know a NATO type of nuclear planning group. U.S.-Japan doesn't have that type of mechanism. But the point is, I think there's a bit of a confusion about um, whether Japan can um, participate in this new NCG between U.S. and Korea. U.S.-Japan and U.S.-Korea is two different bilateral alliances. So we're not like a NATO type of multilateral military defense alliance. So it's I think it would be very um, institutionally difficult for Japan to, you know, actually participate in an NCG where you're talk, you're going to talk about policy or some kind of planning or so forth. At the same time, we do need to have trilateral consultation mechanisms. Mr. Cho Tae-young, when he visited Japan last week or so, the National Security Advisors Group, I think he also kind of implicated this. In terms of trilateral consultations on extended deterrence, Perhaps it's not at the NCG level, but more at the upper level where we do have an extended deterrence dialogue mechanism that U.S. and Korea started in 2010 and U.S.-Japan started in 2010 during the Obama years. It's like an umbrella mechanism that we have. So perhaps it's much, much easier to do it at the political level, uh, at the extended deterrence dialogue level that we, have, we do have, U.S. and Korea, U.S.-Japan. So we need to... F- you know, figure that out because nobody knows what um, NCG is going to look like. <laughs> and, um, so we're all, Japan is very interested in uh, what that would look like. But we need to also be careful that um, we're not like a NATO, you know, multilateral alliance. Um, we're two different bilateral alliances we need, where we need to figure out how to coordinate with each other. In terms of areas of cooperation, we haven't really talked much about economic security, which seems to me quite a promising area. Uh, given the overlap in areas like technology. Uh, Mireya, uh, how do you view prospects for economic cooperation in the area of economic security? Well, I think that South Korea and Japan find themselves in a very similar position. China is their main trading partner. The alliance with the United States is the anchor to the foreign uh, policy. They both have always preferred that de-risking approach. They never endorsed the notion of decoupling uh, from China. And they also want the United States to stay true to the promise that when the United States develops export controls, technology restrictions, the approach will be one of a small yard high fence and that the United States will use the notion of friendshoring in rewiring supply chains and that they will have close consultation with its allies as it decides on its technology policies. But I think that there are nevertheless differences between Japan, South Korea, and the United States on the economic security agenda, and therefore this will not advance in autopilot. Hard work is required. What are these differences? For one, I think that South Korea is more dependent than uh, Japan on China. If you look at the semiconductors uh, sector, I think that close to 60% or so of South Korean exports goes to China. And South Korean firms like Samsung and um, uh, SK Hynix, they have very large manufacturing plants in China. 
And they actually have been recently in the crosshairs of the US-China competition. When the October 7th export control decision from the United States came out, it gave one year reprieve to these plants so they could continue to operate as before. And recently that has been extended, but now they operate with this shadow of uncertainty as to whether they'll be able to operate as they would like now that the United States is tightening export controls. And also these firms have also been now in the in the radar because of China's sanctioning of Micron. And there's the discussion here in Washington as to whether these South Korean firms should restrain from backfilling those orders now that Micron cannot do so. Another very important difference is that the United States wants to have united front and export controls because that's what makes them work. And we know that it has already negotiated with the Netherlands and Japan. It's an agreement, there was no photo op, no public handshake, but they agreed and now Japan is going to implement new export controls on 23 production equipment products. Uh, but we don't see a similar development with the ROK, which seems to indicate that perhaps uh, Seoul is more skeptical of some of these new movements on export controls. And finally, there is a question as to whether revival of industrial policy will uh, divide or unite like-minded countries. The United States is doing something different with its subsidies in uh, chip manufacturing because they come with strings attached in the sense that firms that receive them cannot expand in substantive expansion in China. That creates tensions. Um, but also I think that uh, it's very important that we're not seeing a rehash of industrial policy the way it operated before the global supply chain revolution because alliances, international alliances are critical to this. And therefore, the recent announcement by Samsung that they'll invest in a development center in uh, Japan, in Yokohama, I think is very interesting and reveals that it's not about just nurturing uh, domestic national champions, but actually you need that access to the technology, the know-how, the managerial skills, and it's therefore how you compete in this integrated uh, world. I was just going to mention Samsung's new decision to make a factory in Yokohama. The government and the business circles in Korea and Japan are trying to figure out uh, how to redesign supply chains so we have economic dialogues. Now that the um, export control issue has been um, resolved, it's a go sign for the business circles to move uh, on the Korea-Japan side. From your comments, the panel is cautiously optimistic on relations between South Korea and Japan. So cautious optimism. But what you've articulated, I think, is the range of areas in which these two can cooperate to strategic advantage. So you've really emphasised just how important this bilateral relationship is for the region. But this brings us to our Japan memo questions now. Perhaps we start with Mireya. If you have a book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan and you are allowed to recommend your own book, we, we permit that on the show. And what do you think people get wrong about Japan? Thank you very much, Robert. I'll take you on that kind offer. So I would like to mention that I have a book coming out on September 1st um, that has, I'm hoping is of interest to your audience. The title is Japan's Quiet Leadership, Reshaping the Indo-Pacific. It is a deep dive on how Japan has evolved domestically on politics, economic policy, but also how its international role has been transformed over the last three decades. And the puzzle at the heart of the book is, how can we explain that a country stuck in the so-called lost decades has escaped the disruption of populism and economic nationalism afflicting many of its peers in the industrialized world and has gone on to flesh its most ambitious grand strategy of the post-war era, the free and open in the Pacific. 
And in my mind, a key element to answer this puzzle is that Japan has reinvented itself as a network power with a connectivity grant strategy that first cut its teeth on economic statecraft, but now also has a very robust security uh, diplomacy, security uh, cooperation. It's a strategy that, you know, being a network power in these uh, tested times is not easy. Uh, it is being challenged by the geopolitical divides, by the choppy waters of economic security. But I think that there are lessons here about how you do more with less and how Japan has adjusted to its uh, declining relative capabilities to have more impact uh, in the region. I think that many people dismiss Japan's ability to change and therefore believe that Japan is not relevant to the experience of many uh, countries. I think that Japan has never been a practitioner of shock therapy. That has never been the way in which Japan, uh, uh, well, certainly not in the past few decades, and that change can be uh, frustratingly slow in Japan. I get that. But when you take the longer term horizon into account, you actually see how much has changed in the last three decades. So much so that the old frames we use to describe Japan's role internationally no longer apply. Japan is uh, today much more than a junior partner hosting U.S. military bases in exchange for shelter under the uh, U.S. nuclear umbrella. It's no longer that passive actor on the international trading system always playing defense. We don't describe Japan anymore as that unstoppable mercantilistic juggernaut, nor do we hear the, uh, as much the charges, the accusations that Japan is a host nation free rider. And from the point of view of uh, uh, many Japanese analysts, they fear that Japan would fade into obscurity, that you would have Japan passing. That never really materialized. Quite the opposite, as the geopolitics and the geoeconomics of the Indo-Pacific heat up, Japan has become a more proactive actor on its own right, and I think a more indispensable ally for the United States in the region. I'd like to just mention two books. If you want something on Japan-Korea relations since the 1998 Joint Declaration, Scott Snyder and Brad Glosserman had published their um, book on Japan-Korea relations in English. And there's very few in English on Japan-Korea relations. And and their book, Japan-Korea Identity Clash, I think, published from Columbia University in 2014-15, um, that I would recommend as like a comprehensive um, guidebook in English on Korea-Japan relations, but on also on North Korea diplomacy. If you want to kind of get back into the history of diplomacy toward North Korea, there's uh, the book by Funabashi Yoichi-san, The Peninsula Question, I mean, the, I guess, Bible for the six-party talks and all that. That came out from Brookings. Uh, institution in 2006. I think it's still the book that you can kind of get a um, kind of like an overview of um, the, all the uh, surrounding four countries, US, uh, China, Japan, South Korea, working on the North Korean issues. The book that I really want to introduce is actually by Prime Minister Kishida. He wrote it before he, ca he became prime minister in 2020. The world without nuclear weapons. There was recently the Hiroshima, uh, the G7 Hiroshima summit, and he tried to um, showcase his, um, you know, world without nuclear weapons um, idea, the Hiroshima action plan, and all that. His thinking behind all that is written pretty much comprehensively in that, uh, no Kakunaki Sekai World Without Nuclear Weapons book um, back in 2020. What people often get wrong about Japan uh, question, it's also related to this, that question. Some people think Japan is pacifist. Still, Japan has this, has always had this realist side. 
And especially now with that new national security strategy that came out last um, year, um, it really brought out the realist side. However, when you read Kishida-san's book about nuclear weapons, you know he's from Hiroshima, so he has that let there be no more nuclear wars, um, you know, the, his idealist side. At the same time, he has this really sturdy realist side of him. He really focuses on nuclear non-proliferation, the NPT, but also focuses on um, the importance of extended de- deterrence. Japan's in a very special position on this nuclear weapons issue, and you can see Prime Minister Kishida trying to become this bridge between the nuclear weapon powers as well as the non-nuclear weapon powers. So yeah, I would recommend actually his book, whether you like him or not, um, that book might be important to understand Japan's thinking on nuclear weapons. Thank you, Yasuo. And uh, Chung Min, in your capacity as chairman of the IISS Advisory Council and trustee for the Institute, book recommendations and, and what do people get wrong about Japan? Uh, I'm going to recommend two books, one by a former student of mine who is in Singapore now, a German, and he just published a book called The AI Wave and Defense Innovation. It has stories about why AI is going to become so crucial uh, in the defense arena. And um, I am right now trying mightily to finish a IISS book on, on Korean defense. And so I hope to finish rewriting it. I, I finished writing it in April 2021, but both my editor and I hated it. So I decided rather than editing it, I have to rewrite the whole darn thing. But I hope to get that out by the summer of 24. The book that I really want to write, well, there are several, but the book that I really want to write, it's about the American opium traders in China in the 1820s. I was watching uh, all of these narcos uh, shows on Netflix. So I asked myself, who were the original narcos? And of course, they were the British. You know, They sold opium to everywhere. Um, and I said, well, okay, but you know, everybody knows about the British East India Company. But 10% of the opium that was sold to China until the 1840s were sold by the Americans as early as the 1780s. And so I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So I, I've done lots of research on this. And so the book is tentatively called Original Narcos. I believe that in the next 10, 20 years, we are going to see a profoundly different world, especially in the security realm, because of AI, cyber, climate change, tech wars, and what I call the beginning of Star Wars. The whole idea of conflict is going to be very, very different because it is impossible to divide military, politics, technology, economy, and culture. It's all meshed into one. The IISS, as the premier think tank in the world on military and defense issues, has a lot of thinking to do ahead because the AI era is going to unleash, in my opinion, a new arms race. And this is why I think it's crucial for the world to understand Japanese and Korean and U.S. high tech and its impact on security. So I would like to suggest a book that just came out by Rutledge, Uh, edited by Michael Roska and Richard Bissinger. It's called The AI Wave and Defense Innovation, and it has a chapter on Japanese and Korean work on AI and its implications for security. Uh, Last but not least, and although I have to finish this thing, 
Uh, I am now currently working on writing a IISS book, an Adelphi book on Korean defense. It's because I believe that both the progressive and the conservatives really have missed one main, main argument. That is, I believe that Korean defense in many respects resembles a donut. The donut is very well armed on the outside. It has F-35s, you know, Aegis cruisers, submarines, you name it, we have it. And Korea has one of the closest military relations with the Americans. But I think deep inside, there is a big gap. And that gap is really thinking about possible crises on and off the peninsula. And so I think the left in Korea have outsourced defense to the goodwill of the North Koreans, and the conservatives have outsourced defense, for example, to the Americans, and the military has outsourced defense to high-tech weapons. But nobody's really thinking about really messy conflicts, as I think we should. So that's my main argument for my IISS book. But I would really recommend the AI wave and defense innovation because that is the future, I think, of the face of conflict and warfare in this region. Well, thank you, uh, Chungmin. Uh, thank you, Yasuo. And uh, thank you, Mireya, for a fantastic and very rich discussion on Japan ROK relations and beyond. Much appreciation uh, from us on the Japan chair. And thank you to our listeners as well for joining us on another episode of uh, Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we urge you to subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. And for more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me at, at Robert Allen Ward. Uh, you can find Chung Min at CM. L-E-E Global, all one handle. You can find Mireya at Solis underscore M Solis. And Yasuo is not on Twitter, but you can follow her affiliation, Candy University at K-U-I-S underscore A-M-C. Thank you and see you again next time.